Welcome to our backyard. This is the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We are two friends having a discussion after everyone else has passed out or gone to bed. Grab a drink and listen as we discuss everything from automation, space exploration, and why the meaning of life is 42. War. What is it good for? Making a shit ton of money. And it has been since the beginning of time. Today we're going to talk about the military-industrial complex. We're going to talk about, historically, the past, where it came from, how it got to be what it is today, a little bit, little bit about its current state, and then some of the ethical questions about it, solutions, maybe. Before we get too far into it, Mike, how are you doing? What are you drinking? Well, we're in dangerous waters, that's for sure, but... Luckily, I think I actually have an appropriate drink this time for this conversation. I've been drinking some vodka on ice, which seems kind of appropriate when talking about military and politics. But what about you, my friend? What are you drinking and how are you doing? Doing great. I got some rogue winter ale here. Just a nice dark beer to help wash down the sadness. But uh, yeah, so historically, the military and the government are usually one and the same. Usually one and the same. So I was going to start my history, I mean, not too far back, but just give a general example of for a long time, governments loaned out their militaries, right? And then the most famous example in the United States would be the Hessians fighting in the American Revolution on behalf of the English, and then a bunch of other times, you know, countless times throughout history, I'm not going to name all of them, militaries being loaned out as a way to generate money for a government but it's it's kind of reversed in recent years do you have anything be before that mike well i do want to say since the beginning of civilization money politics and war have been completely intertwined with each other a great example is just think of roman generals conquering using that to gain wealth to grant to grant themselves political status it's it's a cycle that feeds upon itself a snake chasing its own tail, so to speak. You get politics to get into war, war to get to money, money to get into politics. And then the cycle repeats. But it's, to be honest with you, Nick, some form or matter, politics, money, and war have been intertwined with each other since the beginning. Though, as we discuss further into the military-industrial complex, the amount, the quantity, and the methodology has changed. Especially once we get into the 19th and 20th century. Yeah, so I wanted to start around, we'll, we'll start, I'm starting in 1812 when Alfred Krupp Not 1814 when Andrew Jackson went down the Mississippi? No, two years before that. So Alfred Krupp was a German. His father did, uh, he was an industrialist, and he left Alfred his businesses, which were mostly working in steel. Alfred Krupp designed the steel cannon. Now, at this time, most of the cannons were made of bronze, and steel cannons worked a lot better. You could shoot farther, bigger. Steel is stronger than bronze, so it can take more pressure. Yeah. So he used his special technique to make cast steel and made a bunch of really nice cannons. Well, the problem is he brought it out to the International World Fair you know, as exhibited along with tractors, lights, all sorts of new technologies, and no one really cared because, 
a lot of people there weren't looking to arm their military. They were just looking to see the latest technology, see how they could help their farms or improve their house. You know, the, no one was really there to buy arms. At, sorry, not the world, the world, the first world exhibition. And so he kind of, he knew he had a good product, but he didn't quite know how to sell it. And so he went to the government of, I believe it was Prussia, and gave them some. He also gave some to a few different governments so that they could use his cannons. And what people found was these cannons were really good. Nick, I don't know about you, but this is, you're telling me that Prussia, the soon-to-be Germany, is getting armed with cannons. It makes me a little nervous there. Yeah, yeah, you should. And we'll get to that in a minute. But for the the biggest problem that Krupp had is people just didn't want to buy his cannons. Why would they pay more for these cannons when these they could buy more of these brass cannons? And he went to all all over the world trying to sell these cannons, but no one was really buying them. And so he tried to create relationships. And so and he had a, a tenuous relationship with Prussia because they bought his cannons because some people he sold them to use them against him. And they didn't like that. They found out they were pretty good. So then they were buying it. But he also they also didn't want them to sell to other nations, which Krupp spent most of his time trying to sell them to other nations. And I don't know if the Prussian government just didn't know or didn't care because he doesn't wasn't trying to hide it. Like he spent time in France, England, all these big governments trying to sell these cannons and no one would buy them. Well, why would France need any? They're just going to resurrender anyhow. Well, France was a powerhouse at this point. Yeah, I, I just, I, I know my centuries here are a little mixed up, but it's just fun to poke fun. No, obviously. And, uh, but even Napoleon didn't want these cannons. But that all changed at the Battle of Metz. In 1870, the Franco-Prussian War, France got destroyed by these cannons. They were able to shoot from three to four miles away. It was the first time a city had been destroyed without the attackers setting foot in the city. And this led to, like, an arms race. Everyone Suddenly, everyone wanted these cannons. And I think that's this, this Franco-Prussian War was the beginning of the modern industrial war, where numbers and tactics couldn't compete with the technology of the time. The pieces of the board got changed, so to speak. Yeah, so suddenly, people were trying to buy these these cannons and uh so then he had a surplus of cannons because he this guy we'd have to do a whole episode on him this guy was probably certifiably insane but he well he's prussian so fair he he sold guns all over the world he sold them from china all over europe and like these were huge guns he had like a one cannon that launched a 125 pound ball like that's that's a lot to stop right like how how many houses that have to go through before it stops yeah it's it's amazing how simple the concept of throwing something far on how hard it is to actually execute and so now that everyone was trying to buy these guns you know prussia obviously didn't want him to sell but he wanted money so he was selling them all over the world and then people would bring him over right to schmooze him you know get him the guns uh the funny thing is he big fan of europe or england 
England never did buy his guns. All he really wanted was to be was for England to buy his his guns. He he was a big fan of the English. That one I don't get, but there's a lot of things about this guy that are weird. And so this kind of created this relationship between arms manufacturers and governments because after the Franco-Prussian War, like you said, like tactics and numbers no longer mattered. It became an industrialized war. It wasn't and the thing that went along with it is the death counts of the Franco-Prussian War make it considered to some some considered to be the first modern war because huge death counts short amount of time just because of the giant cannons that were being used. At the time of his death, he had armed 46 nations. So he had sold his cannons to 46 different countries and he had, he did a whole bunch of other weird stuff, but like so once people started buying his guns, he had, you know, different generations. And he would send his bad guns to poorer countries. You know, not bad, but, you know, say he was on his fourth generation. If he had second generation left in inventory, those would go to poorer countries that weren't going to buy a lot. Or China. I'm not going to repeat what he said about the Chinese, but <laughs> it uh, that there's a reason he did not give them his best guns. But that was kind of the what I thought saw as the first change from the arms side, the first kind of cultivation of a relationship between the industrial side and the military side and the government side all working together. And I'm sure that continued. And then, Mike, you had a, another example, a more recent one. I have a recent one, but before I want to bring up the speed on this. So yours... 1812 probably keeps continuing till yeah mid so the Fr the franco-prussian war which was like the turning point was in 1870 right at that time is a very something many aren't talking about during the industrial revolution sorry many talking about the industrial military complex is the industrial revolution beforehand in the history to make weapons well you're at war all of a sudden the blacksmiths instead of making horseshoes are now making swords making arrowheads. With the Industrial Revolution, it's starting to allow specialization in certain industries on mass production. Bullets, military clothing, boots. It allowed large-scale warfare and specialize. It allowed you to produce items by one individual rather than thousands making them. And as that carried on in the quantities and certain markets soon to explode, War became a business, not just in the sense of, you know, conquer, take their gold, leave, not just in, you know, gather more land, have more territory, but the actual selling of goods to your government, your empire, your king, your your country became much more prominent. Even during World War I, this started to happen, but it was less prevalent. During the First World War, it was majority of the companies switching over because it was all hands on deck. So in your mind, think of Ford used to make cars, but no, wait, Ford hasn't come out yet. Think of, uh, you know, companies that were making blankets all of a sudden are making uniforms. It was a whole entire switch over from industry, from consumer market to the military market because it was all hands on deck. Now, World War I changed everything. It saw war on a globalization. It realizes that we cannot sit idly and wait to start producing stuff when war 
breaks out and begins, but rather be prepared for war when it happens. And that's when a Vannevar Bush comes into the picture. A name I was not familiar with until researching this. Vannevar Bush, a mathematician, electrical inventor, and a professor here in the United States, believed born 1912, if I could remember correctly. But he would become a professor and be highly in the majority infosphere in the eastern coast. So major universities like MIT. At MIT is where he ran into a man named, Nick, you might be familiar with, FDR. Eventually, FDR would become President Roosevelt, and Bush would grow in status and have more, more responsibilities underneath his belt, becoming, I believe, the uh, headmaster of MIT for engineering, and starting different organizations. But in 1939, when the Nazis invaded Poland, Bush saw, saw a necessity for large-scale warfare. Obviously, probably being born during World War I and knowing its after-effects, was familiar with the idea of what might happen. So Bush would come to FDR with an idea. This idea was the National Defense Research Committee a group to organize research and arm the United States with new technologies. FDR loved the idea. This committee was formed, along with it, a year after the Office of Scientific Research and Development was created. And guess who was sitting at both? Never Bush. Now, some of you might be familiar with the Office of Scientific Research and Development. That was the organization during World War II that would help the United States with radar and, of course, most famously, create the atomic bomb. See, Vannevar Bush saw that technology was advancing. War on large scale, especially after World War I, was kind of on everyone's forethought. And he saw that in order to do a war, a global war, you need large budgets, large organizations, large amount of scientists and research all working together. And forming these organizations, which, I mean, there's Diamond Dozen now, but forming these early organizations made it possible for large projects as the atomic slash the Manhattan Project. And because of this, because of this tie with the idea of science research and budgeting, because I don't think people realize in order to do a lot of these projects, advancements in science, technology, whether it be warfare or public, it usually creates, a, it needs a large budget to do so. Large backing and sometimes takes decades which a lot of companies individually cannot do, and as individuals, it's even harder. But because of this, because of him coming to FDR and asking him to form these communities, which he was both part of, this military-industrial complex was formed, which transitioned into Dwight D. Eisenhower, who would follow FDR. And most famously, on January 17th, 1961, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, in his farewell speech at the end of his presidency, warned the American people about the military-industrial complex. But that's how the military-industrial complex kind of came into America. It was a necessity for large projects for a global war in the 20th century. And since then, the ties have been created, and they do not look like they're going anywhere anytime soon. No, and speaking of... The United States stealing a bunch of 
scientists to create the atomic bombs. They also offered Alfred Krupp a bunch of land in Alabama if he'd come over and make guns for the United States. Or cannons. And he turned it down? What a fool. This guy is certifiably insane. Madman with a cannon. He spied on people, like, all the time. Like, he built his house with a bunch of passageways so he could spy on his guests and all sorts of weird shit. Like, he's certifiably insane. Now, I'm not saying that living in Alabama is amazing, but it's got to be better than Germany. Probably not wrong. Russia. Probably not wrong. Well, I want to caveat this before I transition. I do have a bias in this. As an engineer, I've done design work for companies. So do know that I have a certain bias in this in this race, so to speak. But after wartime, World War II, where there's money, of course there's politics. And many organizations, politicians, companies started war profiteering off the military-industrial complex that was created. Actually, it wouldn't really be majorly public news to the general public until the 1970s by the name of a Ernie Fitzgerald, a whistleblower, who exposed the Pentagon for overspending by $2 billion. Like, for example, during his time at the Pentagon, Ernie witnessed that they were spending $916 on a $0.34 cent piece of plastic. It was a way for government and agencies to overpay, overspend, and use our tax dollars irresponsibly, which would shock and adore the people today. And from this whistleblowing, an organization called POGO, Project on Government Oversight, was formed and investigated the Pentagon. And in 1981, they found they were buying hammers at $435 per hammer. Now, Nick, I'm no expert, but $435 seems a little high for hammers. And keep in mind, I'm sure that figure is not adjusted for inflation. Oh, oh, no, it's not. It's not. So that was a lot of money back then. Yes. A big thing that happened is, well, stocks, treaties, making a job after politics, it all happened. I'll make legislation for you. You get this contract. You get a lot of money. You help me out in the back end. And vice versa. A lot of lobbying. I assume we'll talk about that. But the military-industrial complex is pretty much a triangle. It's the economy. You're talking about the Iron Triangle? I am. Well, go right ahead. Okay. The Iron Triangle is the relationship between, uh, between lobbyists, lawmakers, and the... Companies who create weapons or anything for defense. And so the way it works, we'll start with the interest groups that represent the manufacturers. They offer to people going into Congress electoral support, normally in the form of funds for their campaign. So they will give them, you know, donate to their campaign, and then in return, they get good legislation because they give them a bunch of money, allow them to stay in power. And Congress gives funding and political support to, you know, like you said, the Pentagon, and they get help with, you know, policy, help with their policy choices and execution. So help them draft legislation, essentially make good decisions. And the interest groups that represent the 
military, you know, like manufacturers, they give congressional support to, say, the Pentagon to help them get what they want. And then they get, in return, reduced legislation or reduced regulation and special favors. An example would be $400 hammers, stuff like that. So everyone is working with each other, for each other, to advance everyone independently, but everyone advances as a group at the same time because they're all, every decision is step in step. Everyone's got, you know, putting this person in office, they owe favors because of the money that was spent, so they help them out, and that's how we get to the ridiculous spending that we have today. I mean, not all is due to that, but a good amount. Yes, this is where I want to bring up political engineering. So I think it's no surprising that uh, I think most people agree with politicians should not be in bed with companies, especially when it's hawkish in nature. But I have to say, I applaud the companies who produce military equipment for how they set themselves up on the chessboard to make sure that they stay on the chessboard. So for political engineering, for those who don't know, it is setting yourself up to have as many delegates on both sides, both Democrat and Republicans, on your side. And how they do so is they try to put their jobs as spread out as in many different districts and have their subcontractors do the exact same. We'll go into the details on how these military companies produce equipment because it is important to the military industrial complex. But imagine this. Imagine, we'll stick with the hammer analogy. I have the stock, the handle. I have an eye to keep the handle on with the actual hammer part and the piece of metal. That's three things. Well, what I do is I put them in three different districts. So every politician will vote in favor for me because I'm supplying each district with those jobs. No politician will ever vote against a company or policy that will hurt the jobs in their district because they're too worried about getting reelected. And that's pretty much political engineering, which I have to say is a brilliant move and absolutely genius. And then you have subcontracting. So imagine, imagine we're making the same hammer. Well, the companies you own in different districts, they only shape and put together where they get the wood, where they get the stain. Those are other jobs. Those are other districts, more politicians on your side. And very soon you have a lot of districts covered and a lot of politicians voting for you. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually super smart, especially when you, the hammer is a great analogy, but when you look at something bigger, when you can spread it out over multiple districts, and countries. it's pretty easy, and yeah, it's pretty easy to see why there's so much support for all this. Think about how complex an aircraft can be, and how many different parts are on an aircraft. And how many places and jobs that can create. That's uh that's a lot of power, especially if you're wanting to influence politicians. Uh just to give you some uh some figures, if I remember correctly, the F thirty five it produces more than a hundred and forty six hundred thousand jobs just for one aircraft. And that's in America. Like I said, countries. Uh many defense contractors and military companies offshore some of their products. By offshoring, it assures political ties for different nations to make sure those countries are happy, which means if those countries are happy, then the United States is happy. And this is to clarify, 
In order to sell as a defense contractor internationally, Congress has to approve it. So in order to get to a different business, so say say I make a jet. I supply, I put all the supply lines, all the manufacturing, all the assembly, all in different districts, all in different countries. And I that's hundreds of thousands of jobs. Then you have subcontractors as well, so even more. Well, I assemble it and stuff like that, but say I want to sell to Britain. Well, in order to sell to Britain, I have to go through Congress to give so. Well, I have to make sure the congressmen are happy, so I have a larger market to sell to. So I need to make sure all the, there's a good chance of their jobs being in their district to make more jets to sell to a different market. It's a very, I scratch your back, you scratch my back market. And it's uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's I, I didn't come across that. And it's, like you said, great idea. Like, really good idea. And just genius. Like, it's so simple, but it's so smart. Huh, who would have guessed the engineers and military guys would come up with a more clever business solution than the actual uh, business majors? Huh, it's almost like it's almost like engineering is the superiority major. Well, I don't know about that. Well, in recent years, going back a little bit to the Pentagon and jobs, something I thought was very strange, Nick, which I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever heard of Congress doing this. Congress signed a budget for the Pentagon and gave them more than what the Pentagon was asking for. I don't know about you, but I've never heard of Congress giving a government agency more money than they asked for. Like, if that doesn't cause some red flags, I don't know what does. Yeah, so from the experience I have with government budgeting all relates to wildfire and forestry work, and they regularly receive less than they ask for. So even if it's justifiable, like pretty justifiable, I mean, the whole, the whole federal budgeting system is a little messed up, but I've never heard of anyone receiving more than they asked for. I've heard of people doing crazy things in order to get the budget that they need, like spending their previous year budget to ensure that they, so they can say, look, we're out of budget. So they get more next year. But I've never heard of anyone just getting more than what they asked for. One of these things, it's not like the other. It's, uh, it's quite, it's quite terrifying. Uh, that being said, so the relationships between these contractor companies and the government is very intertwined. It has to be. You're dealing with secrets. You're dealing with uh, licensing up the ass for high ordinance, for top secret clearance, for explosives, for certain standards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And because there's so much ties, so much money going in, again, I can't stress how important it is that a lot of these projects cannot be possible without government funding. It's just they're so expensive, so risky that it's nigh impossible for a individual entity or organization to do so. When Uncle Sam is backing you up, you spend a lot more money and you're a little bit more risk taking, so to speak. But because they're so intertwined and so tied into each other, the secrets and the back scratching is through the roof. And a point that a lot of people brought up is a lot of these military companies might be too big to fail. For example, the F-35. Good idea, poor execution. So the F-35 is a jet airplane that was supposed to replace a bunch of other jet planes. And based on which branch would have come with different features. 
Well, Trump tweeted that the F-35 project was seven years late and 70% over budget. And he's thought about maybe canceling it. One, he couldn't cancel it if he wanted to because I don't think it goes through him. I think it goes through Congress. But two, this caused a chain reaction where military companies started to panic. This was the first public threat to their industrial complex that they created. And from this, the defense industry, and this is just 2021. I don't, I couldn't, I had a hard time finding other areas, other years. But in 2021, the defense industry spent $98.9 million on lobbying. That's nearly $100 million on lobbying. That's, that's a lot of money, Nick. Yeah. And it's, it's big boy numbers when, like we talked about lobbying in the past episode, but I feel like all the big boy numbers were probably put up in, in the defense lobbying industry. Yes. Um, again, how this system works is like most government bureaucracy stuff. There's a lot of hoops and, and red tape to jump through, which kind of makes it a closed loop system where it's not the hardest to enter. I've actually did a little research on how to become a private military contractor. It's actually not terribly difficult. But to get the contracts, to get to the big boy stuff, to... So I have a great personal story. Not, okay, not personal, but in my town, there was a manufacturer, we'll say, who was going to manufacture a part for, I forget exactly what helicopter, but just a very simple steel part, something in the helicopter, like at the top part where it spins, not a... Part of the rotor? Part of the rotor, yes. Sorry, I'm not a engineer what's the op not a fixed wing or i'm more of a fixed wing person but yeah so the rotor like the top some little like literally just like a steel peat like a steel ring so it's a part of the rotor they got the contract and then they uh they because they said they're going to build it in the u.s but they obviously outsourced it to mexico the feds came in took the whole thing down and some people served some prison time and now they do steroids at the gym. It's a it's a whole th small town thing. What? Yeah. So like these the guys who did it were just like super meathead guys who own this like manufacturing thing. Wait, wait, no, no, no. And let's start. Let's start with the Mexico thing. So they promised okay. the government so, to make. So they promised the government that they're going to make these pieces in the U.S. for like whatever price. So they outsourced it to Mexico, produced it in Mexico, shipped it up to the U.S. You know, put the made in USA stamp on it here and then shipped it over. Somehow the feds found out, busted the whole thing. Some people went to prison and paid a like ridiculous fine. And there's, but like everyone knows about it, but they're just like these super meathead guys. So no one ever talks to them because they definitely do steroids. My wife sees them at the gym all the time. It's wild. It's just a, like a wild small town thing, but I bet it happens everywhere. Yes, but I think legally. Uh, I don't think people are familiar, especially here in the United States. A lot of our military equipment is not made in the United States. Uh, higher stuff such as like airplanes and tanks, they usually are, but sometimes... And I bet a part of that is that it didn't pass like the, you know, it wasn't probably made with this good enough materials to pass whatever test. And then they figured out that it was being made in Mexico somewhere, I'm sure. So I'm... Um, I don't know if they the feds figured out that they had outsourced it to Mexico or just they got the product and were like, well, this is shit. What happened? Maybe column A, maybe column B. But again, a lot of U.S. military equipment is outsourced. 
like uh, certain jet engines are made in Australia, then shipped here. A lot of military equipment stuff is made in China. Everything from gloves to night vision goggles. So the contractors can divvy out stuff to other countries that we may or may not be in conflicts with, which seems like a bit of an egregious thing. But when enough money's on the line, a lot of people look oh, the other way. And something I thought was uh, very funny. So if you're listening to this, you might be familiar with some of the major companies, such as Raytheon, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, uh, Northrop Gunman, um, the Energy of Nuclear Security, uh, Boeing, all these companies. Something I thought was very funny, um, because, Nick, you probably heard the joke or the quote, can't remember which is which, is if women, women rule the world, there would be no war, just only people not talking to each other. Yep. Well, it turns out it's not Familiar. that it's not that true. Some of the biggest military industrial companies, for the longest time, majority of them all had CEO women. All their CEOs were women. As of now, Lockheed Martin and uh, and Boeing now have male CEOs again. But it turns out, uh, war profiteering is sexless, whether you're man or female. They uh, when there's enough money on the table, all weapons are available. If that's progress, I don't know what is. I mean, I mean, nothing makes nothing makes things go smoother than money. But speaking of surprising, since we're still talking about a little bit lobbying and uh, women in the industry, I was very surprised by this. Uh, in 2019, Elizabeth Warren proposed a plan that would ban, def- ban defense officials from owning stocks in defense contract companies and make them wait four years after leaving the government to join the firms and so-called companies one it's actually not the worst idea ever actually kind of support that idea too am am i agreeing with elizabeth warren that's what i'm thinking it's like usually i don't but that was very surprising i'm like that's completely rational and makes sense of course it it got shot down and they're not going to happen with it but time and time again i think in boeing's history uh a senator set up a giant con defense contract and which uh, Raytheon was supposed to win and they didn't because Boeing pretty much bribed this politician to come over and once once her term was over she immediately became a member of Boeing they eventually got caught, sued, but Raytheon lost a huge military contract, which goes to show that there is no honor amongst thieves it's all of them backstabbing each other and stuff like that for contracts, and it's a lot of money, it's not it's not hundreds of thousands, it's billions of dollars on the line well, yeah, I mean, when you're making something that each product costs hundreds of thousands for one, it's pretty easy to get into the billions. It, uh, it's, it is easy to get billions. And also another thing is how often in this system that's created, how often things are over budget and past their due date. Like how often do deadlines not matter, which is very surprising to me because from... From an engineering standpoint, if you become in over budget and behind schedule, usually you're done. But for some reason in the military industrial complex, it doesn't really matter. Probably because they have so much leeway, so many friends in the government that don't care, I've had to guess. Yeah, you're more than likely. But since we're talking about money and friends in government, something also I thought was very interesting. Sorry if I'm rambling here, Nick. Feel free to interrupt me whenever. Uh, we are spending more 
on the U.S. military now than we did during the time of the Iraq and Afghan war. And that's counting for inflation. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I knew that, but I also, that's shocking. It's probably because we just gave away all our military equipment to the Taliban, so we got to replace that, if I had to guess. That's a fair guess. I was thinking about Ukraine just giving them billions of dollars, but I don't know if that falls underneath the military budget. But no, that's very surprising to me. It, when we were in active war, we were spending less money on the military than we are during peacetime. That seems a little off to me, Nick. I mean, there's fishy written all over this. I mean, no matter where you look. But I, I just, it's it's fishy, but it seems like a necessary evil. Now, I'm not saying to the extent that it is, where it seems like people are just making way more money than they probably could be in like a normal, you know, private laissez-faire market. But we also don't want all this top-of-the-line military equipment to be able to be sold to com competitors. We don't want the technology to get out of our hands. So we do need to compensate these people for their work. Now, I think that the question is more of how do we do that? And I think that, like we talked about earlier, you can't wait until time of war to start, you know, gearing up for war. I agree because we don't live in a we don't live in pre-industrial revolution times where numbers and tactics rule the day in a conventional war. No, I I agree with you. Uh, equipment rules majority, and don't get me wrong, I can't believe I'm saying this. There are lots of aspects of the military industrial complex that I actually support. One, like you mentioned, is it's. Uh, walk softly with a big stick. It's better to be prepared for war and not need. It's better to have it, and not need it, than need it, and not have it. Also, Look, Teddy Roosevelt was right. Yeah, on he's out on right and everything. A lot of things, pretty much everything. I mean, he he nailed it with the national parks, and he nailed it with walk softly and carry a big stick. I mean, I think that's it's a great foreign policy. This might be just me biasy, but when whatever our if we're in active war. Whatever our troops need, whatever our countrymen need, give it to them. They need more bombs, give it to them. They need better body armor, give it to them. This is well. That's what's insane to me because okay, so the fire department in town. One of the guys from our town wrote to the fire department asking for donations because they needed a certain backpack that could hold these medical kits that they're that they so they could go out in the field and have good access to, you know, all the stuff they need for any medical incident they're going to come across. And obviously we gave it to them because that's what you do if you're an American. Uh, but it just seems like that's something that they should have had. No, I'll, I'll, I agree with you. Uh, based on what I understand and know about the military adjusting complex, it's if you don't have ties with the politicians making the policies, the lower the lowest contractor wins so it might necessarily be the best equipment for our troops it just might be the cheapest so like um just because something has a military standard doesn't mean it's good to be honest with you there's probably a lot of aftermarket civilian models for every military equipment that's better than the military equipment it's just how much the government wants to spend on the soldiers and i'll be honest with you 
the bigger the project, like the more moving pieces, the more jobs it can create, the more the politicians are willing to spend high budgets. But if it's something simple like a plate carrier, it tends to be the lowest contract wins, at least what I saw when researching. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty common. So like, and it's not a perfect example, but it's the realm I'm most familiar with. So you look at fire, like wildland firefighting, a lot of guys who do it as a career have their own packs that they pay for. Now, the government will supply you with the pack, but they'd rather have the nicer mystery ranch packs over the, I don't know, not surefire, but some generic like fire name, you know, pack because it, it sits nicer. You wear it, you know, it, it carries the weight better. It's more comfortable. It allows you better range of motion, all that stuff. But most people just pay for it by themselves. And, you know, when I buy equipment for our company we usually buy the cheapest stuff because we don't or you know the the entry level stuff because we're not doing it all the time so like i understand both sides of that you know it's do we need to buy the top of the line stuff for people who aren't going to use it all the time right i mean there's an argument to be made there but also if someone is going to be using it all the time do we need to buy the cheapest stuff can we have some good stuff that cycles in and out. I mean, it's, you know, there's a, there's a gray area. And, and the thing that I find the most frustrating is that, like you said, so much money is being spent, but it's frustrating how we still have troops who aren't super, like aren't the most prepared equipment wise for their job. Like that just seems wrong with the amount of money that's being spent, especially when you look at something small like plate carriers or something like that, that is relatively inexpensive compared to aircraft. I mean, how many plate carriers could be bought? How many high-end plate carriers could be bought for the price of, you know, one F-35? Oh, abs- absolutely. Um, From a personal standpoint, from my friends who were active duty, the amount of people in their squad who would ditch the gloves they were issued to get and just get their own gloves something that you're going to use every single day it, i mean gloves aren't that expensive but yet they got rid of the military ones because the military ones were not great they were just they were par and par should not be the par was not high enough so to speak oh yeah i mean same thing with uh not just wildland fire, but structure fire as well. Most people buy their own gloves. Some people buy their own boots. Uh, I mean, it's government. What are you going to do? <laughs> and now, I guess, uh, uh, you know, the the solution that people would come up with would be, well, what if we just give a stipend so these guys can go buy gloves that fit, work for them, and then I feel like the they would just raise the price of those gloves to where they're still, like, not super affordable for the guys. Like, you're just passing the cost on to people who want to buy those gloves instead of having the government pay i also disagree with that simply because certain standards not might not be met like uh uh yeah you go went to go buy these gloves that you've always worked with when you worked before entering the military but they have this little yellow line just because it's just design and pattern well that's kind of visible in war so it might not be the same standard but again to the uh to defend large military companies, again, the amount of innovations in technology and gear that the soldiers benefit and civilians and society benefits from is is quite high. A lot, pretty much you can backtrack every medical 
and technological advancement in some shape or form to a military. The military is a huge component of innovation. It's necessity and high budget. It's amazing what you can do with that. I mean... We'll look at most of the advances in treating burn victims came from the global war on terror. Like everything we recently learned pretty much came from that and which extends to anyone who gets burned you know stateside i mean not just that but just the that's like the biggest example that i hear about all the time just from being somewhat close to like the medical field adjacent well here's nick something most people use every single day gps global positioning system that is a U.S. military construct that is for U.S. troops. I mean, also look at highways. Highways were invented because fear of invasion, so they contracted out a bunch of highways so the U.S. military could get around better throughout the United States. The amount of uh, just how much creation is made. You have you have to imagine. It's not that these companies are evil. It's just a few bad apples spoil the basket. It's a lot of engineers, physicists, mathematicians, computer scientists, material scientists, everyone just trying to create, trying to make the better stuff. But then you have the bureaucrats. It kind of ruined things. Like, just think about how much NASA alone, which is a government entity, which it got a lot of their technology from missiles, which were used for war. And then, or like uh, IBM, Boeing, just think about how much planes they use people fly on. But they're also creating different types of aircraft for war, for different jets. Or Raytheon creating Blackhawks and Ospreys. Just all this information and knowledge would not be possible without without this unholy alliance between politicians and the and military companies in this military industrial complex. Yep. I mean, it's it's something. Yeah. I I, I that's the thing is I think everyone's kind of upset about it, but at the same time, we reap the it benefits. It is a necessity. Yeah, we're we do reap the benefits of it, which is why I'm not saying there shouldn't be some form of relationship between, you know, these defense contractors and and representatives because and not, I'm not saying like okay, so here's here's my argument is that like right now we're spending more on defense than we were when we were in active war. That seems excessive, but we also don't want to spend nothing because we're not in an active war. So I guess the question is, how do we find a balance of what we spend in peacetime to where we're still prepared for war, but maybe not? You don't have the entire factory running, just certain sections of it. A caveat I want to add to your question, Nick, is secrecy. It's a very complex thing. So secrecy will probably come up a lot, whether you want to check and regulate the military industrial complex or if you're inside the military industrial complex, make sure secrets don't get out. You don't want your enemies to know what you're doing. Therefore, you can't let the general public know what you're doing. It has to be a lot more tongue-in-cheek, which makes it checks and balances much more difficult. But I do agree with you. There should be there should not be a time and period where there's no spending. One, because you get organizations like DARPA, which is technically like a military company, creating like robot dogs, creating lasers on dolphins some of the most innovative things ever humanity has ever seen but at the same time 
we got to make sure we don't spend $400 on a hammer again. But how do we do that without without giving up government secrets, without giving the enemy like plans that we have new technology that they might want? I mean, a great example of the military industrial complex would be the Blackbird made in the, ooh, was that the 50s, 60s, or 70s, Nick? I can't remember. I'm going to say probably 60s or 70s. Okay. Well, for those who don't know, it's a it was a ultra-fast spy craft to take for uh to take spy photos over country regions that we were spying on and we wanted to keep it completely black ops completely dark and secret and we didn't want the secrets to get out well because this was a new age aircraft for its time doing new equipment new new materials new new everything they cost a lot of money to make well if you were to allegate and expose where the spending was going to, well, then our enemies or people we wouldn't want would know. So you can't really check and regulate the spending for material for, for equipment like that. But at the same time, you want to make sure the government's not spending $900 on a 30 cents piece of plastic item. It's... It's damned if you do, Nick, and damned if you don't. Right. And so how do we how do we get around that? Like I actually have an idea. I don't know if it's a good idea on how to kind of add a governor and regulator to that. I don't know if you're quite ready for that in the conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm uh I'm all here for it. I I don't have any super specific examples, so we'll go for yours first. So you actually might not like this initially, but let me explain my reasoning of it. We add another organization that handles military spending. So therefore, this company, we'll call it Company X. Sorry, not Company X, Organization X. Organization X has to get money from Congress to dispute it to the different companies making the military equipment. Therefore, elect politicians do not have a direct connection to the military-industrial complex. There's a buffer, a middleman, which means that the the military-industrial complex companies can't directly apply to the politicians to hear their case. So, say, say for example, a company wants $5 billion to make a new aircraft. Well, they might ask the organization in between, the organization asks Congress. Congress says, no, we're not giving you $5 billion. We're giving you $3 billion. And they only give you $3 billion instead. That's a proof of concept I thought. Don't get me wrong. There's still going to be corruption. There's still going to be backdoor deals. But it seems like a buffer barrier, so to speak, between company and politics. Yeah. And, then, and I don't have any super... Because the hard part is... You want to give enough money to encourage innovation, but not enough that it's wasteful, right? So you're, you're trying to find a happy medium that is almost impossible and try to do it in a way that, like you said, doesn't, uh, doesn't you know, build all this corruption. And I guess the, the part that like... And can't be exposed. That's the hardest thing in my mind is you can't expose what you're spending on. Right. Like, yeah, because you can't, like, it's, it's secret. So it's just way too... How do you secretly regulate something you don't know? Okay, right, exactly. And so the solution that I see thrown around a lot is, you know, 
turn it all over to the government, let them do the innovation. And, you know, the example of DARPA is great, but I don't, I don't know if that's replicatable. I don't know. I don't even know if that's a word, but I, I, I think the innovation is better in the hands of private industry, but at the same time, like it's hard to control that. So, I mean, I've been racking my brain. I just, I don't completely see a way around. If I may ask, yep. what's the difference between private industry making military weapons and the private industry being so embedded with the government as it is now? They seem they're both private, but they both seem the exact. They both seem the exact same. Like, like for example, private usually usually. Uh, Competitive makes innovation. That's very true. Right now, in the military industrial complex, that is very true. Companies are innovating, trying to up one each other, creating new technologies. Completely true. But are they really private companies? Very like, are, or are they more government companies at this point? Based on how much they're in the pocket of the government. So yeah, like you're saying, we have like a China situation going on, where private industry and government industry are one and the same, which it very much appears to be true in our case for, at least for defense. I mean, that's a, that's a good argument. And I guess the only argument I have is that with complete takeover by the government, you're going to see, I would say, <laughs> and this might seem ridiculous, but I, I'm pretty sure it's true. If the government controlled all these companies, I think they would cost even more to produce less. That's that's fair. I mean, it seems like it's a 50-50 case of how much are private and government. I, I will not... I will agree with you that if it was actually completely government-owned, it'd be way less efficient. But I won't, I, I won't secede that it's not completely independent from the government. Well, I agree. And that's the thing, is that we don't... We don't want it to be completely independent. Like we don't want an Alfred Krupp situation where, you know, Boeing is selling, you know, top of the line military equipment to the highest bidder. We want to keep that relationship. Yeah, I mean, but we don't want to. I mean, yeah, but we already do, so it's well. Then, yeah, I mean, that's the thing where, like, I'm, I guess, not happy about it, but I'd pay a higher price to keep that in our hands. Then, and I think that's, I mean, ever since that Franco-Prussian war where, you know, conventional warfare equipment becomes not as, not the most important. I mean, when you're talking about unconventional warfare, yes, you, you can, an unconventional force can defeat a conventional force, but we're preparing for like a conventional war where we need to maintain an upper edge. So we want to keep all our secrets at home, which is tough because, I mean, so many reasons. The Americans love to talk. Other companies have hack us all the time. Like, I mean, take your take your pick. Industrial espionage is a real thing. I'd at least like to try and pretend like we're trying to keep all of our, you know, like, like that we're paying a premium to keep it in the U.S. is what I, in my mind, I want to believe. This is This is something I just thought of, and please tell me if this sounds stupid. But what if we put the contracts on rotation? So you can't constantly be doing the same business with the same company. Um, 
for example, say I wanted to make a helicopter. All right, they make the first generation. Well, it's been about 20 years and we want to switch companies. Uh, now, that doesn't, as I'm saying it out loud, I realize it doesn't make sense. I don't know. I feel like there's, if we were to spread out the chips, so less company, so more companies were doing innovations and less companies were handling majority of them, I feel like it'd be a lot harder for uh, the government entanglements. It would lead more to espionage, but say if there were 600 companies making military equipment instead of 20, I feel like it'd be a lot harder to use the political engineering of creating job market to have politicians sway in your favor. Right, like a bigger pool to choose from. Yeah. Makes it like, more competitive. It, it, it like diffuses the politicians of having to choose between, like say, say all of a sudden if there's 500 companies and say two of them are in your district, you don't have to necessarily vote for just that one to, to you know, to have more jobs in your district. You can choose who's ever the best of the two or you can, if you have more choices, it seems like it's harder to harder to be corrupted or harder to play favorites, so to speak. It's funny because in Oregon, the government was trying to break up businesses by putting a tax. So like worked for a company that had a, a lumber mill and they're trying to, it, it didn't pass is the, I forget exactly what the bill is called, but basically they were trying to quote unquote encourage smaller businesses in the name of climate change. And they're basically if our mill split up and became two separate companies, they wouldn't get taxed as heavily in the name of climate change. They'd have to be over like five, you know, however many miles away. So instead of completing the product in one space, they'd have to truck the half finished product to another space to finish it there, which seems fucking stupid, a waste of diesel. But it's just, it's just so frustrating how certain industries can be targeted to be broken up, but not this one. Yeah. Monopolies uh, still exist and they just change skin, but still kind of very same thing. I mean, that's just, it's just so foreign to me that one entity is so in bed with multiple multiple people you wouldn't want them to be bed in. I'll be honest with you, Nick. When I think innovation, creation, and inventions, I don't think the U.S. government. Yeah, I don't think anyone does. Yeah, I think of the private industry. But again, some of these some of these projects won't be wouldn't be possible without large budget. All right, here's another another thing I want to. Sorry. Well, I mean, I, what's crazy? I mean, you're kind of making me rethink a lot of things with. Because this whole time, pre-going into this, I was thinking of these companies as private industries. But when you, even doing the research, and then, but I didn't really put two and two together until you talked about your questioning of, are these even private industries based on how much they're intertwined with the government? Like, it's a whole new train of thought. So I'm kind of slow on it as I process what that means for the rest of this podcast. It It just seems they're so so intertwined that I, I I'm having a hard time separating them and it's I understand there is a necessity for it the question we and I think everyone agrees how it's being handled is incorrectly the problem is I don't see 
and a solution where it could be handled correctly unless you have good politicians, which you might as well ask the sun to stop burning. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing that this whole time I've been thinking about, like, it's a necessary evil. And we, we've established, like, neither of us are disagreeing that we need it. And we have little things that maybe this could help, you know, spread it out, do this, do that. But, and, and I guess the one thing that I think, you know, like you said, they have, they've spread out district-wise. A lot of companies aren't allowed to do that. Like, you're not allowed to spread out in all these different things. You're forced because of maybe, like, you know, say lumber is an example. It's geographically limited into where they can and can't operate. No, no matter how hard the lumber industry can try, there's not much they can do in Chicago. Not, not even just that, but on a, just a pure business scale, not even just product, but business scale. You have to register with that state. You have to register what you're like, uh, like you're doing. You have to, I mean, I feel like starting a business and opening up a shop is not exactly the easiest thing to do. I mean, it makes it a lot easier when you literally have the politicians clearing the path for you. It's, I mean, how much red, I'm, I, I would love to know how much red tape has been cleared so these companies can do X, Y, and Z. While if another company tries to do it who's not in bed with them, gets shafted because they can't afford the fines, they can't jump over the hoops, they can't do X, Y, and Z. And what's crazy is, so like, okay, so company I used to work for, some of their products were SFI certified, which is Sustainable Forest Industries, which is a private third party or sustainable for I forget exactly what it stands for, which I should know. But the it's a independent third party that verifies that their their product is created, you know, environmentally friendly, responsibly, legally, all that shit. And they have so like third I don't know an independent party that checks on stuff that comes from certain places that they're not sure about, and they still get duped. But it's create and then that and they the companies has to pay for this. But who is the independent third party that's verifying all this, you know, military industrial stuff? Well, Pogo tries, but again, if everything's secret and they don't have clearance for it, how how are they gonna get access to it? But I'm I'm also very happy you brought up budgeting and um, quality insurance. There's one of the biggest issues for me right now with the military industrial complex is there's no consequences if you fail. Like Trump tweeted the uh, years ago, it a, the F-35 jet fighter pilot is seven years at the time, seven years behind schedule and 70% over budget. I'll be honest with you, Nick. I can't think of any other company or industry where if you're that far behind, they still keep giving you money. There's like, and if you fail, like say, well, Mike, you've never had a contract with the federal government ugh, for real. <laughs> even, even their logging contracts are like seven year things. Oh, seven years behind schedule. Well, it's a seven year contract, no, 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 no. even though it all take no, no. But yeah, it's probably seven years behind schedule. Oh. Then they play kind of dirty. But so, um, yeah, I'm not going to get into it, but. Probably not seven years behind schedule. Probably like... But are they contracting it out to private companies? Yeah, so private companies do the logging. Gotcha. And they... So it's a bidding they war contract for contracting. It it's a, yeah, open, open bid. 
kind of situation. I mean, it's it's probably not it's not as high it's as not, billions. It's <laughs> yeah, but it's also probably not seven years behind. It's probably a, a year or two behind, which seems like a lot for logging, but is probably in the grand scheme of government contracts, probably not that insane. But to me, it's it just insane that if I was a company and I promised X, Y, and Z and I didn't deliver, that I would still keep getting funded and still getting paid, even though I'm now getting paid way more than what I previously said I could do. It makes no, it, it, that to me is a huge issue to me. There's no consequences for failing in the military industrial impacts. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for trying and failing. But I think that should fall underneath research, not the pro contract. So it's like saying, hey, we need these tanks by blah, blah, blah. And they need to do this, this, and this and meet our standards. I think that's way different than saying, hey, we need to design a new type of missile. We're looking for this. That to me is two different things. Like one is research. The other is development. Those two should not be... Those should either fall in a specific order or be completely separate. I'm when billions of dollars are being spent and budgets are going way over price, and we're not even allowed to know how or what is being spent on. I have an issue with that. There should be there should be some type of uh, consequences for becoming late for a contract, and I don't and I understand things happen, so there should be some leeway and give but seven years and 70 percent over budget seems excessive to me yeah i mean that's i mean you said it perfectly like i don't i don't mind paying for research but when i ask for a product i expect a product could you could you imagine trying to do that like as a normal business owner for the consumer market i can't imagine turning in something to my boss a month late (laughs) much less like a week late, like a deadline is a deadline. And there's obviously there's extenuating circumstances. And like, you know, I've had projects that, oh, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna need another week or something, or, you know, like, uh, like a big one right now is in the logging industry. There's just not, I mean, not, not just logging. There's no truck drivers. We're short on trucks. Everyone's short on trucks right now. That's an understandable you know, the logger tells me, oh, he'll be done in, you know, a week, dependent on trucks. I know that means two, three weeks, you know, the equipment's done everything they can do. We still have to get the wood out. There's, there's nothing that we can press a button and use trucks to move this wood. Like that's understandable. But I just, can you imagine every I mean, how how often do you think they ask for updates? Like you said, there's no fear of fa- or no fear of failure, no repercussions. But do you think the government's like, hey, when are we going to get those F-35s? No. Like, can you imagine every month for seven years trying to come up with some excuse, trying to like telling them, oh no, like it's coming. Like, how do you keep that up? Uh, drive me insane. I was thinking about this the entire time. You might be able to find it online, but I, I didn't think about it until now. I would love to see what one of those contracts look like. Like the fi- the, the, the cross T's and dotted I's. Like what are they allowed to get away with and not get away with? Like what are... Yeah, I have enough trouble reading simple... Not sim- I mean like the... Con- 
I'm familiar with the contracts that pertain to my industry, but even sometimes I have to like ask someone to help. There's no way I could even interpret one of those contracts, I'm guessing. But it just seems, uh, it's just so weird to me. Like I, I, like during COVID times, it was hard to get steel. That was a big part of my industry is where do we get the steel? It's like, hey, we're we're just waiting on sheet metal. We we need this to to make the product, but we can't do it because the steel's coming from this country. We just we're just we're just trying to get out of it. That was kind of like similar to your trucking analogy. It's just reasonable. But how far in the contracts do they allow extraordinary circumstances? Like even even like apartments allow certain in their contracts allow like you know oh you're in the co- you're in a coma you're in a hospital we're not gonna give away your position or something like that or even like in pro fo- uh, pro sports teams if they're injured and stuff like that they're not gonna give up their spot on the team like there's still reasonable circumstances these all don't seem like reasonable circumstances I'll be honest with you they all seem like all wearing Hawaiian sandals eh, we'll get to it when we get to it oh. We're getting another $3 billion? Ooh, I'll get the new coffee maker. Okay, so hypothetically, what if we brought all this manufacturing back to, you know, say like Boeing was forced to put all their manufacturing in one, bring it to Seattle. They do all their stuff in Seattle and they take it away from all the other districts. Do you think that that would have an effect if they lose all that pool in all these other areas? Yes, I think that would have a major effect. I mean, I feel like that's a pretty reasonable, I mean, okay, so there's, for most, for, like, maybe bring, you know, you not have to split everything up so much, and I get we're so specialized that different places are better at doing different things, but. But here's the issue with that, Nick. I completely agree with you, but it's freedom. It's the freedom for a country to be like, you know what? I want to have my business in two locations. To force a private company to a certain area, it doesn't seem democratic to me. No, it doesn't. You're right. Your idea would completely work because usually company, not companies, politicians may say they're a dove, may say they're hawkish. When it comes to voting time, they always support the troops and they always support where their jobs are, no matter whether if they agree with the, the policies or not. But to force them, it seems it seems like you're chopping off your left hand to save your right hand. And now here's, I guess my qualm is the government seems fine to force many other industries to do that. Like, why, why is this different now? And then I guess to me, I think it's wrong when they do that to someone else. So I don't want to say they should do it to another person. Right. But, and it comes back to this special relationship they have of why they're different. I guess, Nick, if you put enough lipstick on, you'll get special treatment. Yeah, I guess it's more of a problem with the government than it is with the industry. And like you said, this would not be a problem if we elected better politicians, which is the theme of a lot of our episodes lately. Yeah, it seems like uh, it seems like a lot of the evil all stems from are are we the problem? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, are we the bad guys? Yeah, no shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I just, I, I can't, I'm not angry at the companies doing these deals. I'm disappointed, but I'm not angry. It's like, hate the game, not the player. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd take that deal. What about you, Udovich? You take that deal? Oh, fuck yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I've done work in the past for 
this industry and I want to eventually get back into this industry. I like creating and I like creating things that go boom. And the only way I can do that kind of stuff is to be in bed with the government in some form or matter. They're the only ones with a bottomless paycheck and the only ones who will give me the permits and licensing to do so. So it's like you got to brown nose a little bit, but you got to brown nose to make sure you don't sell your soul. You just got to find that delicate balance. Yeah. But I'll be honest with you, Nick. I don't, that's all I have for solutions and possibilities. It, it's like, uh, to be honest to you, it's like a project that looks so big, it's overwhelming, and I just don't even know where to begin. Like, it's like uh, vines that have wrapped around a house and they're squeezing and condensing it. It's like, where do I even start to, to undo this knot that is created? Well, that, that was my problem, too, is you look at it and you're like, oh, well, I'm against that. But then you're like, well, to fix that, I have to do something that I'm also against. <laughs> You know what I'm picturing right now? I'm picturing a giant, like, Looney Tunes wall of, like, a dam, and they keep plugging their holes, and they keep sticking different fingers in different holes to plug up the dam, and they're all in a configuration that looks uncomfortable, and you're like, well, I'll just live like this forever. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what it's like. And, yeah, it's it's frustrating because... You know, like I said from the start, we we didn't want to be another like, oh, military industrial complex bad. Like there's bad things, but there's we also, you know, there's good things that we benefit from. And I was hoping because I didn't have any super great solutions because all the solutions that I thought because I I was like, OK, well, what if they applied that to my industry is like, well, that's stupid. I don't want to have to do that. That does. That's not I don't think that's super moral. So, like you said, I think it it's just gonna the only the only solution is to elect more honest candidates. Or at the very least, I can't believe I say this again. Elizabeth Warren surprised me. Her policy is not egregious. It just don't just don't have stocks in the company. Don't make a don't profit off of this off of war racketeering don't don't become don't become a war profiter just assign the job to the company that deserves it don't don't do it because you're going to make a couple million dot bucks yells and nancy pelosi <laughs> you're not wrong well and you know nancy well i mean i i think that comes down to like this is what i don't understand uh, when Trump became president, he was forced to put all of his businesses and all of his stocks in a blind trust because everyone was so worried that he was going to advance his personal uh, wealth by being in office. Why do we not make every other politician do the same thing? Well, we uh, so that's more of a presidency and vice president thing. So it's very common, if I remember correctly, for presidents and VPs to step down as CEOs and founders and stuff like that i mean is it when was the last time we had a businessman as president carter uh no uh cheney okay well i mean did he step down <laughs> <All right. laughs> uh, well he stepped up to be president yeah okay that's a whole nother thing but i mean not the greatest example i'll admit yeah no uh no i i i agree there if you're going to be a public servant there should be different there should be some isolation barrier between privatization, but that's a I think 
a whole nother can of worms, which, yes, has a factor in this, but I don't think we should go into depth for. Yeah. And, I mean, even, like, you know, talking about, you know, industries voting, you know, giving campaign money, that's a whole nother topic. But at some point, you know, like, give my example here, working in the timber industry in Oregon, Oregon is pretty gerrymandered, just like any state is gerrymandered by the controlling side. I'm not saying one side is better than the other. We all know everyone does it, so let's not pretend like it's this one-sided thing. The, But it's, they slice just enough of like the big cities that the timber industry can't, doesn't have like as big of, not fangs, but like as big a say for being like their the voice predominant. Their voice is not as loud. Their voice isn't as loud for being the predominant worker for the county because our district has just a slice of uh, Eugene. It's insane. All these, if you look at the congressional map of Oregon, it slices up Eugene so it can distribute enough Eugene residents to all these rural areas to where there's enough of them to take over these whole swaths. I don't know how the fuck it passed the, the giggle test, but but you're like, how? why is it that they do all this stuff that hurts like the number one producer for these areas. Like we have shipbuilding, ag, and lumber at number one. Like what what are we doing? It's because of stuff like that. So I don't want to take away industry's right to have a voice because industries do supply jobs and jobs are super important. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be a politician. I don't want to be a person and take away someone's job. So it it's super tough. And that's why I don't, I can never be a politician because I know the right thing to do is going to fuck over a lot of people, right? Like that's what's tough. So the easiest thing to do is just be a, a dirtbag politician and let these people do whatever they want, right? Because you, you know, you might hurt the industry a little bit, but really, you're just going to fuck over your the people in your district for a little bit. So it's like you're almost held hostage. Nick, I have a new goal in life. I don't want fuck you money. I want I can bribe you money. Yeah, I think those are the same things. But continue. <laughs> no, that that that's a that's about it. Uh, it's I think you hit the nail on the head when you said necessary evil because that kind of describes the military plex to a T. The only question is how to limit the amount of evil and i'll be honest with you nick even the solutions we give i i'm not the most excited by them i mean the only thing i can think of is you know we need a good tell-all we need an upton sinclair's jungle we need a uh what's that chick who wrote the book about pesticides the deet um something forget her name we did an episode or we talked about her in the forest philosophy one i mean to me those there's like these pieces of literature that change legislation in a big way i mean there there's a few I, i'm trying to think of better examples i mean the jungle's a pretty obvious one but yeah no i think you're right i'm just trying to make it less insensitive sensitive what word am i trying to use incentive for the politicians to fall into the pockets of these companies there has to be some barrier or at least some way to make them more neutral to more 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 inert 
in some form of a matter, whether it be by laws of not owning stocks, whether it be um, companies all in one location. We have to we have to make the appeal of working with these companies for the politicians' own self gain less less appealing. And I'm not quite sure how, but I do I do agree with you. That's probably somehow the best way to do it. It's not this podcast. We're just just spitballing here. <laughs> huh. Who would have guessed two fools, one who talks about time crystals and the other one who talks about trees and really know about the depths of politics and uh, and the military-industrial complex? Huh. Hell, I can barely speak. For our listeners, I would love to hear your ideas. And I think we all know the cons. But I would also love if either your ideas to fix a solution or the pros that it might bring if we keep our system there because it looks like it's not going anywhere and nick if they wanted to tell us this where could they tell us you can find us on instagram or reddit and send me a message and we'll uh either talk about it or i'll get back to you i'll for sure answer you but uh yeah just let us know curious to hear what you guys think and before we get out of here mike what have you been reading I have been reading Extreme Ownership Still by Jacko Willink, and uh, man, it. I want to just say thank you to all our military and women who have served our country. Uh, I've always been a big fan of you, but and granted, this is a self-help book, so it's not the biggest for stuff like that. But he he's he's told some very nasty stories uh, that has taught him life lessons that i am happy i did not have to learn first-handedly but what about you nick what are you reading i am reading wood by roland enos how wood changed society I mean, it basically just goes through i mean humanity has used trees since the beginning of time shelter tools and just how you know burn witches good and bad you know spruce goose whatever <laughs> all sorts of shit um but how just how underappreciated wood is as an, a product to humanity and how it is our oldest and yet still one of our most important. I mean, we are in an era where we're mining all sorts of crazy minerals from the earth. We're, you know, making all these crazy metals, but wood is still one of our pivotal, one of our most important building tools. And it's been that way from the beginning. So it's just kind of crazy. I mean, when you look at it from okay we we use wood to build houses we use wood to make tools to hunt animals to clean animals to store stuff to build boats wagons travel i mean uh, heat for to settle cold areas i mean we're furniture completely dependent on this this plant that has grown with us this whole time so it's just a super interesting book and it's you know, as someone who works, who grows trees for a living, and normally I like to read more about like the ecology of trees, but it's just, it makes you, it makes you question like, not as much in the book, but just me myself from an ecological standpoint, when two species live together like that and have a symbiotic relationship, how evolutionarily, how much have we influenced trees to grow the way that they do in, you know, certain species that we've been developing for so long i mean look at corn corn we don't even know you where midwestern. it came from 
<laughs> we don't even know where corn came from. We have a few guesses we think we know, but we've been breeding it to be what we want. Obviously, trees are not the same way, but ecologically, we must have done have had such a huge ecological effect just based on our need for trees that it's just crazy to think of what the world could look like without us, which isn't what the tree the book talks about, but just that's where my mind goes when I read it about different cultures using different trees and what they used it for and uh, just kind of the, the effect on the landscape is is implied. So it's just super interesting. Haven't had as much time to read it as I would like. So if you're a listener of the podcast, you know I've been reading it for a while. <laughs> and if you made it this far, bravo. Thanks for listening to the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We rarely finish a podcast without missing a point we wanted to bring up, so let us know what we forgot. And if you have a topic you want us to talk about, let us know at Backyard Philosophy on Instagram and Backyard Philosophy Podcast on Facebook.